Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I want to take another look at a book by Natasha Crane. She's one of my favorites. She's a, uh, just a wonderful writer, very clear and uh, concise. And uh, she's got a book out called Faithfully Different. I've already done a podcast on that. Uh, this one, I like the back of it. It says, Welcome to your place in a worldview minority. Uh, yeah, I'm old enough that I remember uh, that wasn't always the case. People used to be at least tolerant of Christians, even if they weren't Christians, and respectful, but uh, those times have changed. So Natasha Crane, she's a speaker, an author, a blogger, and a podcaster, does a lot of things well. She's got a chapter here that I'd like to look at today. It's chapter four called Regaining a Supernatural Worldview, subtitled Under the Pressure of Secular Naturalism. And she starts off with a, a piece that was in the Wall Street Journal some time ago by uh, comedian Ricky Gervais. It's called Why I'm an Atheist. And uh, that one really struck me because I use that in uh, some of my college classes, and we talk about the way he presents his argument. So he says basically in there that he's chosen science over God. And she says, uh, after the quote, and I won't go into the long quote, but she says, I'm pulling these quotes from a single article, but she said that's pretty much what we see today, that the common talking points that atheists raise basically there's no evidence for God's existence. People who believe in God do so in spite of evidence, the lack of it. Uh, science and religion are mutually exclusive, and actually belief in God is just plain silly. Uh, there are all these ancient gods. People no longer worship them. And uh, then she says some atheists extended a step further. And see, this is not what Gervais says, but she said some will take it another step further that it's not only silly, but it's harmful, and that we should eradicate that. And so she says, we need to start. If we're going to talk about this, about being a different believing individual today in this society that rejects a lot of that, then we have to start with some foundational beliefs that we have. Well, what's the most foundational belief? That God exists. She says, that's not a, a belief anymore that our culture takes for granted. And it's being challenged. It's being mocked, in fact. So she said, uh, why don't we first understand the nature of naturalism and how it's made its way into becoming a default functioning worldview today. So what is naturalism? That's what she's going to get into here. It's the idea that the natural world is all that exists. I mean, look at the word natural, naturalism. And she says sometimes they call it methodological naturalism. And that's the belief that only natural laws and forces operate in the universe. So in other words, the method of the way things operate is within. It's like a box, a closed box. Everything about the world is in that box. There's nothing outside the box. It says uh, we can't detect it, so don't even worry about it if there's something outside there. So she said basically naturalism, her way of summing it up, she uses the quotation from Carl Sagan. And naturalism is the idea that the universe is all that is or ever was or ever will be. By the way, that's quite a statement, isn't it, that Sagan would know something like that? But anyway, let's skip ahead. Uh, it'd be easy to challenge that. She says from about uh, 1500 A.D. until today, uh, there's been a major shift that's going on in Western society, moving from kind of an outskirts of naturalism. Now it's becoming the default functioning worldview. So um, she said in late medieval times, for example, that everything in the social order was governed by the idea that there was something transcendent beyond nature. Uh, a man wrote a book, Taylor was his name, wrote a book called A Secular Age, and he said 
they used to see it as an enchanted world, that there was a relationship between the, tan, uh, the transcendent world and the natural world. And she, and she says, of course, during that time, it's not that people were not atheists, but everybody believed in this transcendent order that atheism was almost inconceivable. It was actually more difficult during that time to not believe than to believe, given the social reinforcement that happened for belief at every turn. But there were some shifts, societal shifts that took place. And now people say it's harder to believe than not to believe. And she says, well, how'd that happen? Well, you have the scientific revolution in the mid-1500s to the late 1600s, and you had the Enlightenment in the 1700s, and there was a new emphasis on science and human reason. And then they began to apply those scientific ideas to religion, what we can know about God through reason and the senses. Let's just focus on that, they said. And so they said for many of the day, that result was deism belief in a God who set the world in motion. So there, there probably was a God and whose existence could be inferred from nature, but he hasn't really revealed himself. Now, I think back to American history, you've got people like Jefferson and Franklin who would consider themselves deists. They believed in some kind of benevolent God out there somewhere, but uh, not any book like a Bible to reveal him. She said, though, for many others during that time, the result was atheism. But the main thing was during this time, so we're talking about scientific revolution, the enlightenment and all, during this time, it was people that were seen as a self-sufficient island of reason. It was the individual who could discover the nature of the world and morality. They didn't need any external revelation. So religion was no longer viewed as really necessary for a moral social order. Well, then what do you get? You get countries that became politically secular. And that really changed things, didn't it? It says uh, one's belief in God or the Christian God wouldn't be reinforced by the society that was built on those worldview assumptions. They're not going to get reinforcement, whether it's in school or popular uh, media, uh, entertainment, whatever it is. Christianity was just one worldview option among a lot. And now atheism that used to feel inconceivable in medieval times is now quite a, an option. She said, let's get to today now. Everybody longs for meaning today, but we encounter so many options. We have confidence. We lack confidence in our own beliefs. We're haunted, in a sense, she says, by the realization that any belief is contestable. What, what do you hang on to? Somebody else out there is going to reject what you believe, and it's a sense of unease in our society. And I, I say exactly right, because I teach uh, in college and these college students today are very uneasy. They're very tentative. They're unhappy. They're concerned. They're, they question everything. And many of them are very depressed, a lot of anxiety. And she said uh, that as more and more people abandon Christianity and theism in general, this naturalism is going to become and is already becoming the default worldview that we encounter. Remember, this book is about dealing with the world that's out there. We need to know what it is. And this is her way of letting us know this is what we're going to encounter with the non-Christians around us. And she says it's not just atheists who have a naturalistic worldview. The many people who believe in some kind of non-specific God, kind of a generalized God, they live their lives as if the world is all there is. And we see that all the time. Frankly, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say it, but I think a lot of Christians live their lives Monday through Saturday as if there's no God. I do a talk on uh, worldviews, so that, that's why this chapter meant a lot to me, because 
I see the same thing. People compartmentalize. They will worship God if they do, if they're Christians, they worship God on Sunday, and then they don't think about God for the rest of the week. The way they use their time, the way they use their money, the people that they talk to, it's totally disconnected. Okay, let's come back to her book here. So she says, people now look at religion in a different way. It's not just a different worldview from naturalism. People see it as intellectually inferior to it. The idea is that, good grief, you should have grown out of this after the last 500 years. And so there's a lot of intellectual mockery that goes on. And she says, what are the five most common ways that people put down religion these days as being morally and intellectually inferior to naturalism? So that's what I wanted to focus. This is the heart of her chapter here. So number one, people say religion is anti-science. It's anti-reason. It's anti-evidence. And she has a quote, a really disturbing quote from Robert Reich, who is a former Secretary of Labor, and he was a Harvard University professor. Here's what he had to say. The greatest conflict of the 21st century, century will be between modern civilization and anti-modernists. Hmm, who do you think those are? Between those who believe in the primacy of the individual and those who believe that human beings owe their allegiance and identity to a higher authority. We'll plug the word God in there between those who believe in science, reason, and logic, and those who believe that truth is revealed through scripture and religious dogma. So he sees this great conflict between modern and anti-moderns. Well, we're the anti-moderns. That puts us in a, in a pretty bad category. We're the knuckle-draggers, right? The ones that haven't gotten with it yet. And she says, uh, people with a naturalistic worldview often see religion and science as a clash, a way of um, way of obtaining knowledge about the world. You either learn from reality, about reality from science and reason, or you learn it from faith-based revelation, but not both. And she says, that's not accurate, by the way. And so she says, look at the three buzzwords that naturalism always goes with, reason, science, and evidence. And so obviously nobody wants to be the opposite of those things, so we should be abandoning religion. Okay, so there's the first one. Religion is anti-reason and anti-science. That we should get with it, get with the modern times. How about number two? What's a, another a common uh, challenge to Christianity and all? Religion is an emotional crutch. The idea is, okay, we get it. You know, some of you are going to hang on to your religions, but it's an emotional reason. People are fragile these days. Uh, naturalists face life better. And we have these supernatural fairy tales to comfort us. Here's a third challenge, a third way that the naturalistic world looks at us today as Christians. Religion is childish. She has a quote from Albert Einstein. For me, the Jewish religion, like all other religions, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions. So we should abandon being children, right? We're adults now. We're grown up. We should, we should abandon this stuff. In 2019, Richard Dawkins had a book called Outgrowing God. And it was kind of the idea, he aimed that book toward teens to say, look, if you want to be intellectually mature, leave God behind. That's another childhood fantasy like the tooth fairy. Here's a fourth challenge. Religion is the result of brainwashing. Now here's a man, uh, I hadn't heard of him before. He was a candidate for president of the United States. I don't know what party he was part of. Zoltan Istvan, I-S-T-V-A-N. Here's what he had to say. The fundamental problem with religion is that believers are so sure they're correct on anything and everything they believe. This is, of course, a sure sign of insanity. 
Like the hundreds of millions of other non-religious people out there, it's hard for me to fathom how religious people got brainwashed into being this way, being this ignorant. Right? So it's got to be brainwashing. You wouldn't come to the conclusion that there's a God on your own. You had to be brainwashed. Somebody out there or something controlled their thinking till they're finally become, becoming convinced of a falsehood. Right? So it's brainwashing. Here's the fifth challenge that she sees this worldview, the way they really see Christians. It's harmful. Religion is harmful. Bill Maher, we know Bill Maher, religion, he says, it stops people from thinking because they think all the answers are in that one book. It impedes progress. It justifies crazy people. Flying planes into buildings was a faith-based initiative. Wow. So obviously religion is harmful. It, it makes you fly planes into buildings. She said, so, what Mara is saying, not only personally lacking any rational thought, you're hurting society. Everybody's a victim of your foolishness. We just have a lot better society if we got rid of these crazy religionists. So let me go over those five again. These are four, five of the most common ways that the secularist looks at a Christian today or anybody in a religious uh, form. Religion is anti-reason, anti-science. Number two, it's an emotional crutch. Number three, religion is childish. Number four, it's a result of brainwashing. And number five, it's harmful. So here's what I would suggest. This is not in her book, but just something I'd suggest is we need answers to these things to, to be able to interact with people because this whole book is knowing what the outside world believes and what we should do about it and how we can interact with them. So Religion is anti-reason, anti-science. Can we argue against that? Sure we can. I won't take this podcast uh, time to do it. How about number two? Religion is emotional crutch. I have a talk on uh, emotional crutches. Number three, religion is childish. Can we challenge that one? How about number four? Religion is the result of brainwashing. How about number five? Religion is harmful. I would say just the opposite. I mean, I think about some of the things being promoted today, like uh, the transgender deal for young kids. You talk about harmful. Taking kids, letting them mutilate their bodies and, and producing sterility and unhappiness and not dealing with the mental anguish that they're going through. Who's being harmed? They are, by a secular worldview. Uh, how about homosexuality? Is that harming people? Yeah, there are all sorts of terrible things that are coming about into the world because of the homosexual lifestyle, but we can't sit back and just say, go ahead, help yourself. You know, it's perfectly fine. No, it's not religion that's harmful. It's getting away from God's plan for our lives that's harmful. All right, anyway, that's just me. Get off my soapbox here. Then she has a case toward the end of the chapter where she talks about building a case for the existence of God. And I won't spend much time on that because we've done that before. Uh, she said, just as an example here, three arguments for the existence of God. One's the cosmological argument. So in other words, how do you get the universe into existence? It can't exist. It can't make itself exist. It can't bring itself into existence. To, to create space and time and matter, the cause would have to be outside of space, spaceless. It'd have to be outside of time. That'd be timeless. They'd have to be immaterial. And it'd have to be uncaused itself. Hey, who does that sound like? God. So there's the first argument. Right? It's called the cosmological argument. Basically, why is the universe here? Here's a second argument. It's called the design argument. 
you look out in the universe or you look in within our bodies, we have DNA, we have so much information. It's like a computer code inside of us. And the fine-tuning of our earth, everything is just right in this universe. All the constants of nature, like gravity, they have to be precise. If they're different at all, there's no life. So that's the second uh, argument, design. That one's, I think, a really powerful one because people love science. They love the latest findings of science. And we can use that because it's pointing toward God, not away from God. So that's the second argument. Third one's called the moral argument. Where did objective moral standards come from? How did we get that? And she says the best explanation for the existence of a moral law is the existence of a moral law giver. And if you don't have a, a moral law outside humans, and it's just up to us, we're in trouble because we just make it up as we go. It's kind of the says who thing. You know, you tell somebody else, hey, don't do that. And they say, who are you to tell me? They'd just be personal opinion at that point. But there isn't a moral lawgiver out there, a law higher than humans. All right, so I will, I think I'll stop at this point. Um, am I near the, yeah, I'm almost near the end of the chapter. Uh, I may cover some of the chapter later, but this gives you an idea, regaining a supernatural worldview. And she says the most reasonable explanation for all this evidence is the existence of a God out there. So it's not... It's not a bad thing to do to suggest that there's a God. It makes sense with what we're discovering about the world. Okay, well, I'll stop at this point. This is the book Faithfully Different. Natasha Crane's the author, C-R-A-I-N. Uh, take a look. Her material is all over the place, and it's so good. All right, well, thanks, and uh, hope you have a good day.